Chapter Four of the Zeitgeist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Zeitgeist by Lily Dougal. Chapter Four. Another six months passed, and an event occurred which gave a great shock to the little community and gave Toyner a pain of heart such as almost nothing else could have given. Anne's father, John Markham, had a deadly dispute with a man by the name of Walker. Walker was a comparatively newcomer to the town, or he would have known better than to gamble with Markham, as he did and arouse his enmity. The feud lasted for a week, and then Markham shot his enemy with a borrowed firearm. Walker was discovered, wounded, and cared for, but with little hope of his recovery. From all around the men assembled to seize Markham, but half a night had elapsed, and it was found that he had made good his escape. When others had gone, Toyner stood alone before Anne Markham. I have often heard what Toyner looked like in those days. Slight as his theological knowledge might be, he was quite convinced that if religion was anything it must be everything, personal appearance included. He stood before Anne. He appeared to be a dapper, rather dandified man for he had dressed himself just as well as he could. Everything that he did was done just as well as he could in those days. That was the reason he did not shirk the inexpressibly painful duty which now devolved on him. You may picture him. His clothes were black, his linen good. He wore a large white tie, which was the fashionable thing in that time and place. His long mustache, which was rather fine than heavy, hung down to his chin on either side of his mouth. He did not look like a man who would chance upon any strong situation in life, for the strength of circumstances is the strength of the soul that opposes them, and we are childishly given to estimating the strength of souls by certain outward tests, although they fail us daily. "'I have always been your friend, Anne,' said Toyner sadly. Anne tossed her head. "'Not with my leave.' "'No,' he assented. But I want to tell you now that if we can't get on Markham's track, I shall have to spy on you. You'll help him if you can, of course. I don't know where he is, said Anne sullenly. I do not believe that you are telling the truth, sadly. But you may believe me. I have warned you. People in Fentown went to sleep early. At about eleven that night all was still and lonely about the weather-stained, unpainted wooden house in which Anne lived. Anne closed her house for the night. The work was a simple one. She set her knee against the door to shut it more firmly, and worked an old nail into the latch. Then she shook down the scant cotton curtains that were twisted aside from the windows. There were three windows, two in the living room, which was also the kitchen and beer saloon, and one in the bedroom. That was the whole of the house. There was not an article of furniture in the place that was not absolutely necessary. What there was was clean. The girl herself was clean, middle-sized, and dressed in garments that were old and worn. There was about her appearance a certain brightness and quickness, which is the best part of beauty and grace. The very hair itself, turning black and curly, from the temples, seemed to lie glossy and smooth by reason of character that willed that it should lie so. One small coal oil lamp was the light of the house. When Anne had closed the doors and windows, she took it up and went into the bedroom. Neither room was small. There was a shadowy part round their edges, which the lamp did not brighten. 
In the dimmer part of this inner room was a bed, on which a fair young girl was sleeping. A curious thing now occurred. Anne, placing herself between the lamp and the window, deliberately went through a pantomime of putting herself to bed. She took care that the shadow of the brushing of her hair should be seen upon the window curtain. She measured the distance and threw her silhouette clearly upon it while she took off one or two of her outer garments. Her face had resolution and nervous eagerness written on it, but there was nothing of inward disquiet there. She was wholly satisfied in her mind as to what she was doing. It was not a very profound mind, perhaps, but it was like a weapon burnished by constant and proper use. She removed her shadow from the window curtain when she removed her lamp to the bedside. She employed herself there for a minute or two in putting on the clothes she had taken off, and in tightly fastening up the hair that she had loosened. Then she put out the lamp and got into bed. The wooden bedstead creaked and rubbed against the side of the house as she turned herself upon it. The creaking and rubbing could be heard on the other side of the wall. There was a man walking like a sentry outside who did hear. It was Bart Toyner, the constable. After he heard the bed creak, he still waited a while, walking slowly round the house in silence and darkness. Then, as he passed the side where the bedroom was, there came the sound of a slight sleeping snore, repeated as regularly as the breath might come and go in a woman's breast. After a while, Toyner retreated with noiseless steps, standing still when he had moved away about fifty paces, looking at the house again with careful, suspicious eyes. Then, as if satisfied, he slid back the iron shade that covered his lantern, and, lighting his own steps, he walked away. He had moved so quietly that the girl who lay upon the bed did not hear him. She did not, in fact, know for certain whether he had been there or not, much less that he had gone, so that she toilsomely kept up the pretense of that gentle snore for half an hour or more. It was very tiresome. Her bright black eyes were wide open as she lay awake performing this exercise. Her face never lost its look of strong resolution. At length, true to her acting, she moved her head sleepily, sighed heavily, and relapsed into silent breathing as a sleeper might. It was the acting of a true artist. Half an hour or more of silence upon her bed, and she crept off noiselessly. She lifted the corner of the window curtain and looked out. There was not a light to be seen in any of the houses within sight. There was not a sound to be heard except the foam at the foot of the falls, the lapping of the nearer river, and the voice of a myriad crickets in the grass. She opened the window silently. "'Bart!' she whispered. Then a little louder. "'Bart! Bart Toyner!' The one thing she wanted just then was to be alone, and of all people in the world Toyner was the man whom she least wanted to meet. Yet she called him. She got out of the window and took a few paces on one side and on the other in the darkness, still calling his name in a voice of soft entreaty. In his old drunken days she had scorned him. She scorned him now more than ever, but she believed that her call would never reach his ear in vain. In this hour of her extremity she must make sure of his absence by running the risk of having to endure his nearer presence. When she knew that he was not there, she took a bundle from inside the room, shut down the window through which she had escaped, and wrapping her head and hands in a thin black shawl such as Indian women draped themselves with, she sped off over the dark grass to the river. Overhead the stars sparkled in a sky that seemed almost black. The houses and trees, 
the thick scrubby bushes and long grass were just visible in all the shades of monochrome that night produces in a few minutes she was beyond all the houses gliding through a wood by the river the trees were high and black and there was a faint musical sound of wind in them she heard it as she heard everything more than once she stopped not fearful but watching she must have looked like the spirit of primeval silence as she stood at such moments lifting her shawl from her head to listen. Then she went on. She knew where a boat had by chance been left that day. It was a small, rough boat, lying close under the roots of a pine tree, and tied to its trunk. In this she bestowed her bundle, and untying the string, pushed from the shore. She could hardly see the opposite side of the little ah-wee-wee in the darkness. She rode at once into the midst of its rapid current. Once there, she dipped her oars to steer rather than to propel. She traveled swiftly with the black stream. For half an hour or more she was only intent upon steering her boat. Then, when she had come about three miles from the falls, she was in still water, and began rowing with all her strength to make the boat shoot forward as rapidly as before. The water was still now, as if the river had widened and deepened into an inland sea. Yet in the darkness, to all appearance, the river was as narrow, the outline of the trees on either side appearing black and high just within sight. When the moon rose, this mystery of nature was revealed, for the river was a lake, spreading far and wide on either side. The lake was caused by dams built further down the stream, and the forest that had covered the ground before still reared itself above the water, the bare dead trees standing thick except in the narrow winding passage of the original stream. The moon rose, large, very large indeed, and very yellow. There was smoke of distant forest fires in the dry hot air, which turned the moon as golden as a pane of amber glass. There was no fear of fire in the forest through which the boat was passing, other than that cold pretense of yellow flames, the broken reflections of the moon on the wet mirror in which the trees were growing. These trees would not burn, they had been drowned long ago. They stood up now like corpses or ghosts rising from the deathly flood, lifeless and smooth, ghastly, in that they retained the naked shape that they had had when alive. To the east the reflection of the moon was seen for a mile or more under their grey outstretched branches, and on all sides its light penetrated, showing through what a strange dead wilderness the one small fragile boat was travelling. Very little of the feeling of the place entered the mind of the girl who was working at her oars with such strong, swift strokes. Every day, through the ten or fifteen miles of the dead forest, a little snorting steamboat passed, bearing market produce and passengers. The smoke of its funnel had blasted all sense of the weird picturesqueness of the place in the minds of the inhabitants. That is, they were accustomed to it and sentiment in most hearts is slowly killed by use and want, as this forest had been killed by the encroaching water. Anne Markham's was not a mind which harbored very much sentiment at that period of her life. It was a keen, quick-witted, practical mind. She was not afraid of the solitude of the night, or of the strange shapes and lights and shadows about her, now that she knew for certain that she was alone and unpursued. She was, for the time, quite satisfied. A mile or more down the winding of the lake, and Anne began counting the trees between certain landmarks, then into an opening between trees which could not have been observed by a casual glance, 
she steered her boat, and worked it into a little open passageway among their trunks. The way widened as she followed it, and then closed again. Where the passage ended, one great tree had fallen, and its trunk with upturned branches was lying, wedged between two standing trunks, in an almost horizontal position. On it a man was sitting, a wild, miserable figure of a man, who looked as if he might have been some savage, being who was at home there, but who spoke in a language too vicious and profane for any savage. He leaned out from his branch as far as he dared, and welcomed the girl with curses because she had not come sooner, because it was now the small hours of the night, and he had expected her in the evening. "'Be quiet, father,' said the girl. "'What's the use of talking like that?' Then she held the boat under the tree and helped him slip down into it, where, in spite of his rage, he stretched his legs with an evident animal satisfaction. He wallowed in the straitened liberty that the boat gave, lying down in the bottom and gently kicking out his cramped limbs, while the girl held tight to the trees, steadying the boat with her feet. It was this power of taking an evident sensual satisfaction in such small luxuries as he was able to obtain that had alone attached Markham to his daughter. His character belonged to a type found both among men and women. It was a nature entirely selfish and endowed with an instinctive art in working upon the unselfish sentiments of others, an art which even creates unselfishness in other selfish beings. "'I came as soon as I could,' she said. "'I suppose you did not want me to put Toyner on your track.' "'Yee-ow!' said the wretched man, stretching himself luxuriously. "'I've been a-standin' up and sittin' down and standin' up since last night and blankety-blank.' Here he suddenly remembered something. He sat up and looked round fearfully. "'When it got dark before the moon, I saw the devil.' "'One. Well, I think there was a half a dozen of them. I saw them coming at me in the air. I'd have gone mad if they hadn't gone off when the moon rose.' "'Lie still, father, until I give you something to eat,' she said. While she was unfastening her bundle, she looked about her and saw how the spaces of shadow between the grey branches might easily seem to take solid form and weird shape to a brain that was fevered with excitement of crime and of flight and enforced vigil. She had a painful thing to tell this man, and she could not, as she had hoped, release him from his desperate prison that night, but she did not tell him until she had fed him first and given him drink too. She insisted upon his taking the food first. It was highly seasoned beef, with mustard upon it, and pickles. All the while he watched her hand with thirsty eye. When he had gulped his food to please her, she produced a small bottle. He cursed her when he saw its size, but all the same he held out his hand for it eagerly, and drank its contents, shutting his eyes with satisfaction and licking his lips. All this time she was steadying the boat by holding on to a tree with a strong arm. "'Now it's hard on you, father, but you'll have to stay here another night. Down at the mills they're watching for you, and it would be sheer death for you to try and get through the swamp, even if I could take you in the boat to the edge anywhere.' The man, who had been entirely absorbed with eating and drinking and stretching himself, now gave a low howl of anguish. Then he struggled to his knees and shook his fist in her face. "'But blankety-blank! I'll throw you out of this here boat! I will!' "'What do you come in tellin' me such a thing as that for? "'Don't you know that I'd laugh or die? "'Don't you know that?' "'He brought his fist nearer and nearer to her eyes. "'Don't you know that?' "'It appeared that he would have struck her, 
but by a dexterous twist of her body and a pull upon the tree she jerked the boat so that he lost his balance, not entirely, but enough to make him right himself with care and sit down again, realizing for the time being that it was she who was mistress of this question, who should be thrown out of the boat and drowned. "'Of course I'll row you to the mills, if it's to jail you want to go. But Walker is pretty bad, they say. I think it'll be murder they'll bring you up for.' and it ain't no sort of use trying to prove that you didn't do it. The miserable man put his dirty, knotted hands before his face and howled again. But even that involuntary sound was furtive, lest anyone should hear. He might have shrieked and roared with all the strength that was in him. There was no human ear within reach, but the instinct of cowardice kept him from making any more noise than was necessary to rend and break the heart of the woman beside him, that, although he was only half conscious of it, was his purpose in crying. He had a fiendish desire to make her suffer for bringing him such news. Anne was not given to feeling for others, yet now it was intense suffering to her to see him shaking, writhing, moving like a beast in pain. She did not think of it as her suffering. She transferred it all to him, and supposed that it was the realization of his misery that she experienced. At last she said, there's one fellow up to the falls that knows a track through the north of the marsh to sound ground. I heard him tell it one day how he'd found it out. It's that David Brown that's been coming round to see Krista. Krista can get the chart he made from him by tomorrow night. I know she can. I'll try to be here earlier than I was tonight, and I brought you strips of stuff, father, so that you could tie yourself onto the tree and have a sort of a sleep and I brought a few drops of morphia, just enough to make you feel sleepy and stupid, and make the time pass a bit quicker. For a long while he writhed and cried, telling her that it took all the wits that he had to keep awake enough to keep the devils off him without taking stuff to make him sleep, and that he was sure she'd never come back, and that he would very likely be left on the tree to rot or to fall into the water. All that he said came so near to being true that it caused her the utmost pain to hear it, he was clever enough by instinct, not by thought, to know that mere idle cries could not torture her as did the true picture of the fears and dangers that encompassed him in his wild hiding-place. The endurance of this torture exhausted her as nothing had ever exhausted her before. Yet all the time she never doubted but that the pain was his, and that she was merely a spectator. She soothed him at last, not by gentleness and caresses, no such communication ever passed between them but by plain, practical, hopeful suggestions spoken out clearly in the intervals of his whining. At length she esteemed it time to use the spur instead of stroking him any longer. "'Get upon the tree, father, and I will get you the rest of the things when you are fixed upon the branch. If Toyner's stirring again before I get home, he'll find means to keep me from coming tomorrow night. Climb up now. I'll give you the things. There, uh, there isn't enough of the morphia drops to get you to sleep.' only to make you feel easy. And here's the strips of blanket I've sewed together to tie yourself on with. It's nice and soft. Climb up now and fix yourself. It's Toyner that will catch me, and you too, if I don't get back. Look at the moon, near the middle of the sky. She established him upon the branch, again with the comforts that she had promised, and then she gave him one thing more, of which she had not spoken before. It was a bag of food that would last, if need be, for several days. He took it as evidence that she had lied to him in her assurance that she could return the next night. As she moved her boat out of the secret opening among the dead trees, she heard him whining with fear and calling a volley of curses after her. 
That her father's words were all profane did not trouble Anne in the least. It was a meaningless trick of speech. Markham meant no more at this time by his most shocking oaths than does any man by his habitual expletive. Anne knew this perfectly. God knew it, too. Yet if his profanity was mechanical, the man himself was without a trace of good. There was much reason that Anne's heart should be wrung with pity. It is the divine quality of kinship that it produces pity even for what is purely evil. Anne rowed her boat homeward with a hard determination in her heart to save her father at any cost. End of chapter 4